0: and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. So this week, we are reporting back from the London and New York Film Festivals, respectively. I was at the New York Film Festival going to press screenings, and Gav traveled down to London from Scotland to see a bunch of movies. Most of the films that we saw, we did not both see because the Film festival programs are obviously quite different. So we have a couple that we can both talk about, but then otherwise we'll sort of be telling each other about the things that we saw. And hopefully you can get from that some movies that you might be interested in. A lot of this stuff uh, are films that will be coming out relatively soon. And then there are a couple very obscure things. So it will be kind of a grab bag.
1: And good news. Most of them are recommendations. We saw so many good movies.
0: (laughs) Yes. I saw a few that I didn't particularly care for I think you had more of a positive
1: yeah I literally did not see a single bad movie but I think that was partly because I concentrated my entire film festival schedule into three days so I kind of didn't go to as wide a range as I would have done if I was there for the whole run
0: yeah we also should say we are going to be doing separate episodes on call me by your name and the shape of water so we've both seen call me by your name and you have seen shape of water The Shape of
1: Water is Del Toro's new movie about a woman who falls in love with an amphibian. And can I just say, it's the best!
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Call Me By Your Name is my favorite film of the year. So we're saving those um, for a later date, but you should all look forward to them. Um, We're focusing on slightly less uh, buzzy films, although they have buzz too. So we're going to start by talking about The Florida Project, because we both saw it and it has already come out in the US although it is a platform release so it's sort of slowly expanding to a larger number of cities hopefully it will get to you soon and it is coming out in the UK on I think you said November 10th so it should be reaching everyone soon it is an excellent film I actually didn't see it at the festival I saw it um, at a normal cinema But it was there, and I just love this movie so much. It's by Sean Baker, who directed Tangerine a couple of years ago, which I also highly recommend. Um, Do you want to give a little summary of what this film is about? Yeah.
1: So it's very funny, although it's definitely not in the kind of comedy genre. Um, it's really realistic and it's about this little six or seven-year-old girl named Mooney who lives in a motel in Florida with her mum, who's like in her early twenties. And it's all about basically this little girl's life hanging out with the other kids who live in the motel. And her mum is really fun-loving and immature and irresponsible. Uh, she doesn't really have like a steady job. A lot of her friends also don't or they work in kind of really low-paying jobs at like fast food restaurants and stuff. And I think basically everyone loves this movie. (laughs) Everyone who goes into it is just filled with kind of joy and emotion, it's really tender. The actress who plays the little girl Mooney is incredibly talented, the performance is just so, you know, it sounds ridiculous to say natural because there's loads of performances from child actors where obviously their strength is that they seem like real kids rather than kids that are being written by an adult. But the whole thing just kind of is from her point of view. So it's got that same sense of realism as like Beasts of the Southern Wild or something. But even though it's about quite serious topics, it's not really intensive and depressing, which is kind of one of, I think, Sean Baker's strengths as a director. He kind of specialised in making these quite low-budget films that are about underrepresented people in America. So Tangerine, his last movie, was... It was kind of a similar style in that it's basically about people just living out their lives. The two main characters of that are trans sex workers who are basically just wandering around the streets of LA for the whole film, like having arguments and, you know, going and getting food and stuff. And this one is just about this little girl running riot. And like occasionally um, this kind of well-meaning motel owner played by Willem Dafoe in like his most dad role. Perfect dad in this film. uh, Kind of trying to rein her in, but it's sort of like she's living without adult influence really. And it's just... It is wonderful and very charming.
0: I think uh, we had slightly different reactions to this film because I went with a friend of mine who's a sort of public interest lawyer and we came out of it totally heartbroken and gutted.
1: I was um, also heartbroken and gutted, but I thought yeah. that, that was a bit of a spoiler. I don't think that <laughs> a spoiler. No. <laughs> I mean, it's like an observation about how hellishly difficult it is to live in America with no money and no prospects. I think the trick is, right, the, the way that one usually sees that story is in the context of something like a Ken Loach movie, where it's extremely intense, serious, depressing social realism, and a lot of kind of political observations, whereas this is straightforwardly like, there are people who are having to live in motels who can be evicted at any moment, and like you don't have healthcare, and you're probably unemployed, and you have no like safety net and you're having to rely on your community, and that's really horrible, and at the same time, life goes on, and life can still be really fun, and this kid is full of kind of hope and cheer. Well,
0: I think the difference is that because so much of it is from her point of view, she doesn't understand what's happening. Yeah. And the adults do know what's going on. Yeah. And her mother, the sort of fascinating thing about the movie, I mean, there are a lot of interesting things going on in the movie, but the central push and pull that you start to think about in your head is should this woman be allowed to take care of this kid because she clearly really loves her. That's not the issue, but she's very young. She does not have a job. She makes money by selling uh, perfume sort of in parking lots at these resorts. It it takes place right near um, Disney world and they are living in this motel. I think Sean Baker says it's about the hidden homeless, which is kind of a term for these people who technically are living in a place but don't have any stability. And she is a wildly immature person and you kind of see that there is a resistance in her to shaping up. And the movie doesn't want you to look at her and think, wow, what a terrible person. But you also... I, or at least I did, my friend with whom I went to the movie, we were talking about it after, and you you start to think, like, she just can't take care of this kid, like, this isn't going to work. And then that also feels really difficult to think about, because, of course, children who are put into the foster care system, like, obviously, like, that often, slash, <laughs> usually turns out poorly. I mean, it's, this is not a good situation in general. Yeah. And then it winds up being about the kind of push and pull of that situation. And meanwhile, the kid and then other children, too, just don't have any idea that any of this is happening. Like, they just have no clue. And then Willem Dafoe's role is kind of to be the normal adult in this situation. And he is supposed to... He's the manager of this motel and he's supposed to be an authority figure, which he is. But he clearly feels kind of paternal toward this woman and really... Client loves the kids and so he's sort of enabling her and then that's obviously not necessarily a bad thing to do because he wants to help but then it just becomes very complicated and I found it really affecting because I don't know that it provides an answer exactly although I definitely by the end had an opinion on the situation but it treated all of the characters which with such empathy without sentimentalizing them or sort of minimizing their
1: bad behavior. Yeah, it's very much not exploitative. Yes, at all. Yeah, I mean I had the same reaction to you as well as finding it hysterically funny.
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 also
1: hilarious. Like it's yeah. it's not like you're sitting there the entire time just like crying, you know. But <laughs> I mean, I did cry really I I was like physically crying and I felt really uncomfortable because like the two guys sitting on either side of me were like not really reacting and I was just like how are you how are you made of stone <laughs> I mean they clearly enjoyed the film but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I think like basically the answer is that there was no good solution to the problem because like you said while you're watching the movie you're kind of thinking is she gonna get taken away into foster care and that's probably not great anyway, because even if someone's going to be like, oh, here's a really structured life for you, you're being torn away from this mother who clearly like loves her and wants the best for her, even though she's not competent. So, yeah, capitalism, <laughs> basically.
0: Yeah, but it it's not, I mean, yes, obviously this is the problem, but it also, there's another, one of the other kids in the film has a mother who's obviously in a very similar situation and also mm-hmm. lives in the motel. And you see the sort of difference between that woman and then Mooney's yeah. mom, right? Because this other woman obviously also has basically no money, and she has a sort of low paying job at a diner. And you see how she's kind of making it work and trying to pull her life together. Whereas Mooney's yeah. mother is not really capable of that. And so it does a good job showing the gradations of the situation and kind of the texture Again, without judging her precisely, but it's a pretty bleak situation. But she obviously, you know, loves the kid, which is what makes the whole thing really heartbreaking, I think. Um, and the little girl, uh, Brooklyn Price, who plays Mooney, is just the most wonderful, delightful child, as you said. She's so fantastic in the film. Absolutely hilarious. Just a, a great child actor she was like six when they did it or something maybe seven i mean it's astonishing i realized
1: kind of part way through i realized that she had all her baby teeth and i was like oh my god yeah <laughs> she's so young
0: <laughs> yeah just wild um so we both highly recommend that it's yeah. one of the very best films i've seen this year for i sure. think just behind call me by your name and dunkirk for me go see it it's really really good um why don't you go with something that you saw
1: Okay, yeah, because Morgan and I are going to kind of alternate because we have a long list of movies here. Okay, I'm just going to do a couple here, because one of them is just going to take like 30 seconds. uh, And that's a documentary called Antonio Lopez, 1970, Sex, Fashion and Disco, which is a documentary about the fashion illustrator Antonio Lopez, who kind of defined... The disco fashion genre in the 70s. He started off in New York in the Club Kid scene and then moved to Europe and was hobnobbing around with Karl Lagerfeld and stuff. I went to this because I'm really into fashion history. I would say watch this film if you're really into fashion history and you want to see a lot of kind of famous people like Jessica Lange having conversations about some guy you may or may not have heard of, but really <laughs> it is like the most bog standard talking head documentary i would not say it's particularly insightful and there's a lot of repetition about his sexuality and you know how glamorous he was and how much everyone loved him and i was just like i feel like probably he has some bad sides too but okay <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so not a strong recommendation like perfectly serviceable but i would say if this comes out on a limited release which i imagine it would probably not worth taking a bunch of time out you know maybe if you're like aboard on an airplane yeah, the other film that I'm going to kind of start off with here is um, a film that I've actually published a review of on the Daily Dot, so you can find that and a trailer there as well. It's called Good Manners, and it's a Brazilian werewolf movie. So I told Morgan about this before the film festival, because it had kind of a fascinating blurb in the London Film Festival brochure. They were really obsessed with not revealing what the film was about. So it was this long paragraph all about, you know, social observation and relationships between women and giving some vague plot details about it being about a woman who becomes a nanny to this rich lady who lives by herself in an apartment. And it was like, it's best not to know what it's about at all. And it's like, it's a werewolf movie, you know? <laughs> That's not a spoiler. And I was just like, just just admit that it's a genre film. And also when you're watching it, they like start in pretty early with the full moons and yellow eyes and stuff. So it's like it's fine. Don't need to bother. <laughs> um but basically it is about this story about a woman who, she's really hard up for money, she really needs a job as a live-in nanny, um, and even though she doesn't really have much experience, she's a former nurse and she manages to kind of inveigle herself into moving in with this rich woman who kind of wants her to be a live-in maid and future nanny to her unborn child but also just wants a friend you can tell from the beginning she's quite unusual you know she seems like this kind of young party girl woman who's really rich but she doesn't have a job she doesn't have a husband she doesn't have any family or friends and she gets really attached to uh, Clara her maid really quickly and there's this kind of interesting power imbalance between them as you'd expect and it kind of made me think about how there's been Several movies recently that were about they were either thrillers or horror films, and they were kind of about the sexual politics and the kind of power imbalance between women and servants within the household, and how you can have these really interesting dynamics that are focused around women's relationships. Like uh, Lady Macbeth was one this year, yeah, um, it was really really great, and the Handmaiden, which I've not seen yet, but it's a lesbian romance movie, but like this also has like kind of a sexual aspect mm-hmm. between the two leads, while also being kind of a straightforward horror movie about kind of drawing comparisons between the transformational process of pregnancy and also werewolves. Um, <laughs> yeah. I This movie is great, you know, and I would say it's a bit too long. They probably should have edited it down a bit because the plot, without going into any spoilers, is in two halves. And that means the film is over two hours long, and that's too long uh, for yeah. this particular film anyway. But it's just really unique, you know, it doesn't feel like they're trying to avoid werewolf genre stuff, it's very genre savvy, but it's also not trying to be a conventional horror movie. So there's loads of tender relationship drama and, you know, social satire almost, because they're talking about these class differences, and also it's just really artistically very imaginative, so... It's set in Sao Paulo, and instead of just filming around Sao Paulo on a low budget, they've done these beautiful, kind of painted backdrops. So it looks really fairy tale and brightly colored. And there's a couple of musical numbers in there, too, as well as it having like a couple of stream scenes with really extreme gore. So they've covered like every base. (laughs) So I would (laughs) recommend Good Manners when it comes out in wherever you are.
0: All right. I'm very intrigued by this ever since you sent me the uh, (laughs) werewolf description. I would recommend Lady Macbeth too we didn't i don't think we've ever talked about that we certainly didn't do an episode on it it's like a tiny little indie but that's definitely one of the best films that's come out this year yeah i think very strange
1: has nothing to do with macbeth just fyi
0: not related um it's based on a russian novella from the 19th century i went and saw it with a couple people after turning in an essay which was a weird celebration because it's very bleak But it's a period film set in the north of England with black characters, which is really interesting because that almost never happens. It's not the only interesting thing about the movie, but it's kind of a neat, neat detail. Yeah, that's unrelated, but I just figured I would shout that out. Recommended. Uh, I will start with my, not actually my least favorite film of the festival. I'm not even deigning to speak about my least favorite film of the festival. But my least favorite film on my list, which is uh, the Meyerowitz stories. By Noah Bomback. which uh, has been received glowingly to my frustration. This continues a People trend. People just
1: like Noah Baumbach.
0: Well, this is the thing. So Noah Bomback's first, I don't want to say big hit movie because it was a tiny indie. It wasn't like a blockbuster, but the first thing that I, as far as I'm aware, got him sort of a significant amount of acclaim the screenplay was nominated for an oscar etc um is this film the squid and the whale which is very autobiographical about his parents divorcing in the 80s this movie is one of my favorite films of all time my parents are divorced it's very personal to me i think it's an absolute masterpiece i recommend that everyone see it jesse eisenberg plays it's like 20 years old and plays the younger version of Noah bomb back like it's just amazing and Ever since then, I feel like it's been a bit of a diminishing returns situation for him. Um, We have talked about Frances Ha on this podcast, which you despised, but I love that film. (laughs) Um, But Greta Gerwig is the co-writer of that movie, and she's the star, and I think that she definitely had a lot to do with that film, and we will be coming back to her later in this podcast. But I kind of wonder whether he had this... A really emotional story in his life that he needed to get out in a kind of cathartic way, which sometimes is what happens with actors. I mean, this, people always reference Harper, Harper Lee, right? Like she had to write this book and then she didn't write anything else ever again. Um, and he just seems to be repeating himself. So this, the sort of basic plot summary of this is that uh, Dustin Hoffman plays the patriarch of this kind of artistic family uh, from New York city and he's a sculptor who never had the success or recognition that he really thought he deserved. And now he's old and losing it a little bit. And Emma Thompson plays his third wife or something, fourth wife, who is an alcoholic. And then he has the this group of kids played by Adam Sandler, uh, Ben Stiller. And then I've forgotten the actress's name, which is terrible. Um,
1: There's a lot of famous people already.
0: Yeah, he's, a very, he's very in demand. I feel really bad for forgetting this name. Am I am
1: I right in saying that? Because I I feel like I saw someone saying that Emma Thompson just doesn't really get much to do.
0: Well, yeah, this is the thing
1: because it's Emma Thompson. Like, <laughs>
0: I was I was just boggled. The women situation in this film, Elizabeth Marvel. I apologize to Elizabeth Marvel for for forgetting her name. Plays the the sister in this clan, and it basically is a retelling of the squid and the whale except they're middle-aged now because Noah Baumbach is middle-aged and I don't resent him for wanting to tell a story about middle-aged people because that's what he is like fine do your thing but it is so a man film like the women have so little to do Adam Sandler has a teenage daughter who's just gone off to college who also bears very little resemblance to a real person the daughter the Elizabeth Marvel character is the one who really gets shafted. She doesn't have nearly as much to do as Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler. And it just felt very much to me like a retread of this earlier material, but not as interesting or deep or original. Like It just felt like he was kind of rehashing this stuff that he'd already done in a sort of broader and less specific way. I was sitting next to this critic, who is sort of a young guy, I mean, I don't know who he was, but he laughed so hysterically and obnoxiously at every single thing that happened in this movie that I think it actually impacted my experience of it, so I should <laughs> give that a caveat. But I didn't laugh at anything the whole time. It's a comedy. And I was just like, I don't care about any of this. And you've got Emma fucking Thompson in your movie, and she's basically not doing anything. And... I mean, like, I should say the dad and The Squid and the Whale is also, like, a famous, or not, like, wanted to be a famous author and wasn't successful, blah, 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 right? And again, this movie has been really well-received, and I feel like it's a, sort of another entry in this trend that's been making me crazy lately, along with Mother and Blade Runner 2049, and I feel like maybe something else that I'm forgetting. Um,
1: I mean, like, 90% of films. Well, right. Because like, I think I can tell where you're
0: going with this. <laughs> yeah, but there have been, like, specific egregious instances lately that have been really making me nuts. Of sexist or at least um not particularly uh women friendly films that have just gotten these glowing receptions and I don't understand. And this one also I just don't think is very good, but I just watched it and I thought why? I don't and women have responded positively to this too, like that's fine, but I just it was really exhausting.
1: So I have a Noah Baumbach question Yes. um, slash theory. How many movies does he do? Because it seems like maybe if he took like a couple of years off, he might come up with a new idea. Because I have have this feeling that he just makes at least one movie per year, which is too many.
0: And he used to not be as prolific,
1: I think. I think he does more now. This is the Woody Allen thing where they just like fucking churn out the same movie forever.
0: Yeah, because he did another one last year with Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts that was also
1: kind of about people having a midlife crisis. I remember really enjoying not seeing that film.
0: Well, I watched it. It was like on Netflix and I was like, I'll watch this movie. And it's not great at all, but I thought it was like fine. I thought it was modestly entertaining. It has some problems, but I didn't I didn't watch it thinking like this is a nightmare, right? And I watched this one. And I was just like, you've got to be fucking kidding me with this, right? And yeah, I think that they are probably right, that he just needs to stop for a while and think about things and just take a break.
1: He's basically the opposite of Sean Baker, who we were talking about from the Florida Project, because we were both like discussing him earlier and we were like how completely unusual it is to see a filmmaker who can do such a wide range of movies not kind of in terms of genre but he does really really authentic specific real world dramas which are about wildly different demographics none of yep. which he has any personal investment in until he has decided to go and essentially do like a kind of anthropological investigation and hire really good actors who are authentic to the project and it's like it's basically unheard of to see who is someone who can do that whereas most directors are kind of in a dramatic niche And sometimes it's like, that's absolutely fine because you're really good at it. And other times there's very much this diminishing returns thing, which kind of seems like that's what's happening here.
0: Yeah. And as you say, there are some people for whom that's fine. Most artists tell the same story over and over and over again. Even if that, even if it manifests in a very different way, people basically have the same sort of thematic fixations. But in this case, yeah, I think it's just gotten really, really stale. And I think that people also got a bit seduced by the actors, who all give very good performances. That's not the problem with the movie. But Dustin Hoffman is really good. And I think that is very exciting to people because it's Dustin Hoffman. And I get that on a certain level. But that doesn't mean the movie is good. And then Adam Sandler actually
1: acts for the first time in like a decade or Adam years. Sandler, when this happens, because like, he has done like a couple of dramatic roles in the past yeah. like decade, it just makes me think of that episode of the West Wing where Leo McGarry has to do his first vice presidential debate. Sorry, this is a real deep cut. But basically <laughs> the concept is that he's never done a debate. And so he spends the whole time fucking everything up and lowering expectations and everyone's fooled. And then it means that like if he just does like an average job, everyone's going to be incredibly impressed, which yeah. is basically what happened with Trump in real life. Yes. It's just like the expectations are so low that if Adam Sandler is even in a drama that it's like, holy shit. <laughs> right. And he is actually good. in. I mean, I do not care
0: for Adam Sandler, but like he's genuinely good in this. I kind of forgot. I didn't forget it was him, but I sort of forgot to hate him very quickly. But then I think the response becomes outsized because people are like, oh, my God, Adam Sandler. It's like, please
1: calm down. Like, I have no patience for know. that, because I am perfectly happy for actors to do a ton of trash, but Adam Sandler specifically does really offensive trash. Yes. So yes. it's like, just no. No. Nope. Ah, yep. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, let's move on to a good movie. Don't watch it. <laughs> yeah, please. You go now. Okay, so the next one on my list is called Bad Genius. Uh, this was quite a big movie in Thailand, and it's probably... is one of like the most mainstream movies we're going to discuss in this episode, not mainstream in the sense that it's gonna get like a really big international release, but it's really accessible and it feels quite blockbustery. I find it quite interesting because it's a teen movie, but it doesn't fall within the tropes of what you expect a teen movie to be. So it's actually a heist movie. But it's a heist movie about academic exam performance, uh, which is really, yes. really, yeah, it's great. So it's like basically the concept is the main character is this poor girl who's really, really smart and gets a scholarship to an academic high achieving school where most of the students are just rich and paid to get in. And she's a really nice girl and her dad's a teacher and he's really you know nice and homey. And then everyone she's with at school is just rich. And they kind of get into a situation where she offers to help her best friend cheat an exam by giving her the answers. Um, This kind of snowballs into her helping like 10 really rich kids cheat in exams by doing this really elaborate system where she taps out these codes like a piano key system on the table. (laughs) And it's filmed in this really kind of glossy Sherlock style. So it's just really fun to watch. And it's super tense because I feel like basically anyone who's taken an exam, it's really easy to tap into that residual stress, which this film does very effectively. And also, it's kind of a heist movie, so they've got all like the heist movie music and stuff, so it's very fun. But it also is, it does have kind of social commentary. And I, weirdly, after watching this movie, I was thinking how much better it was at social commentary than Blade Runner 2049, which is completely <laughs> different <laughs> in every aspect. But basically, Blade Runner for 2049 is very keen on being like a political film, and it's got all these really Obvious comments about the robots being slaves and what have you. Um, we discussed this in the podcast, but basically, there is a lot of, I guess, to use a cliche phrase, telling rather than showing. You know, it's it's not very well done, and they haven't really thought it through very well. Whereas in this film, the whole premise is about her being a working class girl in this really upper class school, and the kind of the eventual kind of moral decision she's got to make is like is it right for her to take money to help rich students cheat and get into really great colleges um when they're just like paying to get their way through but if she makes the moral decision not to do that then she's not helping herself and then also she's got this foil who's this other kind of her her equivalent in the school and he is extremely moral and refuses to to cheat at all so he's kind of her rival it was just like a really interesting concept and it felt quite it was out with what you usually see for teen movies which are either very teen movie specific or quite intense dramas like coming of age dramas and yeah and you know, all the actors were really fun, like it's not like a really serious drama film, it's quite kind of glossy and there's a lot of kind of silly effects and what have you, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, I would I would recommend it, Bad Genius. I feel like this is something that will be released online, um, I don't think it's got a cinema release in the US yet, but I would also recommend this one. It's very fun and uh, you can watch it with teens. Did you ever see The Perfect Score? No. I haven't
0: either. Someday we should probably watch it. This is Chris Evans' breakout film in which he and Scarlett Johansson and a crew of other teenagers steal the SAT uh, <laughs> result. I don't even understand the answers. I don't know. But it loomed large in my high school, which is Chris Evans's high school. Lots of discussion about that terrible film. But anyway, that's what immediately came to mind when you said uh, – heist movie about you know, <laughs> I have a feeling scores. that this is
1: probably better than the perfect score without I, having seen the perfect score <laughs> I do not doubt that this is true <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh dear alright I will go with Mudbound which I saw yesterday actually which is the new D. Reese movie adapted from a novel also a Netflix release as is the Meyerowitz stories which is interesting to consider because both of these are going to be pushed really hard for the Oscars and for that kind of discussion it will be it will be interesting to see if they manage to get any nominations for them because the industry is very resistant to giving Netflix Oscar nominations i suspect they're not going to um and but also I, I feel
1: like both of these films are not getting the overwhelmingly positive buzz yes. as many other films in its same kind of category of fame level.
0: Yes, I agree with that. And I didn't think Mudbound was amazing, so I and it's really long. And if you're sitting at home with a two and a half hour movie, it's easy to turn it off. I also yeah, this one is, always has
1: to take into consideration that people who are wondering about voting for these will be watching them on a laptop.
0: Right. This is sort of this is tangential. Um, we will do an awards podcast later in the year, I'm sure. But I kind of also feel like Netflix movies should not get nominated for Oscars until they start putting them in the theaters. Uh, Kyle Buchanan made a good point about this on a podcast recently that Ava DuVernay's film Thirteenth was nominated for an Oscar and won an Emmy so there needs to be some rules clarification but mudbound was interesting to see particularly on the big screen it has beautiful cinematography and i didn't love it i think it has a lot of problems but i did feel kind of bad that no one's going to see it in a theater it's a film that takes place uh primarily after world war 2 in the south i don't remember which state uh, about kind of a white family and a black family and how they interact with each other. So the white family owns this land and the black fl- family are sharecroppers on the land. And then each family has a young man who was fighting in World War II and then comes back. And it stars a bunch of pretty famous people, including uh, Carrie Mulligan, Garrett Hedlund, uh, Jason Mitchell, uh, Mary J. Blige. I believe Um, it was just a a story cast and I found it very frustrating to watch because as I said it's really long and it's based off of a novel that I assume is very long and I didn't know it was until I saw the credits but I immediately thought oh yeah that's the reason why this was an issue because there was so much going on and so many characters that it just I could not handle it like there was just so do you think they much. could have
1: adapted it in a way where they cut out a bunch of characters yes
0: so what they should have done was focused on the two uh men played by Garrett Hedlund and Jason Mitchell who come back from the war and had the movie be about them and then the, this sort of um you know, gets to a breaking point at the end of the movie it's very affecting so it's not like nothing in this movie worked and if you have Netflix I would say like give this a watch it's not going to cost you anything except two and a half hours of your life um Garrett Headland is white obviously and then Jason Mitchell is black and they are living in this segregated area and there are a lot of racist people and they wind up forming this kind of friendship because both of them are clearly suffering from some form of PTSD and have all these issues from the war and are able to actually talk to each other about it and it's presented in a way that's a lot of the dialogue in the film is kind of hokey and doesn't quite work but those scenes I think are really effective and then they have all this stuff about like Carrie Mulligan having issues as a wife and normally that would be the kind of thing I would really be into and ironically even though Dee Reese, a woman is directing this film I found that stuff much less effective which which sucked Um, she also directed Pariah several years ago which is also a great little indie film But it felt like this movie, there was all this stuff and there was a core that could have been really great and they hadn't done it. So it was kind of maddening to watch because unlike something like Blade Runner 2049 where you can see the good things about it, but the core kind of feels sort of toxic, this, the core felt great, but it hadn't really come together. Um, Apparently they had edited the scenes of the white family and the scenes from the black family separately as though they were two separate movies and then sort of knit them together. And I thought that was probably not the best way to do this because it feels incoherent. Um So that was too bad. I will say as the last point, Garrett Hedlund has turned into an absolutely unbelievable actor, which I don't think any of us would have anticipated based on his earlier work. Jason Mitchell is really excellent too, but Garrett Hedlund was just like absolutely amazing. I thought, wow, you're not just a pretty face. That's, that's nice for you. I'm happy. <laughs> he was dreamy in person. Also, he said one sentence at the press conference and then sat there looking attractive. <laughs> I thought.
1: I feel like every time job. I hear about Gary Edlund, I have to Google image him because I swear to God, he's like a cardboard box in my brain. Yeah, He has no distinguishing features, but I'm glad to hear that he's a talented actor. He's
0: very ge- generically attractive. And apparently, according to Wikipedia, I discovered this, turned down both uh, Finnick in The Hunger Games and Christian Grey in Fifty Shades of Grey. So he knows what he's doing. He's now fucking around. <laughs> no, thank you. The
1: number, of, the number of people who turned down Christian Grey is a long list. They were making some serious Downing. efforts and then they ended up with, I would describe the last man in Hollywood. Right. <laughs> Not even in Hollywood, the last man on Earth who would willingly make this film.
0: Well, he looks quite a bit like, uh, what's his face? Charlie Hunnam. So they clearly had something that they wanted and then they didn't wind up with it because Jamie Dornan doesn't look like that at all. He's the last man. <laughs> so so yeah, I guess sort of a solid B probably to Mudbound. Check it out.
1: So my next film is called Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. And I think this was kind of the most conventional film I saw at the festival without being too disparaging. Um, I would describe this as like a mum film, which isn't to say that like mums as a subgenre do not watch great cinema and also trash like the rest of us, but there's a particular type of film that I feel is marketed to the mothers of Great Britain. It usually <laughs> has Julie Walters in a supporting role as a lovable mum, and a lot of kind of British character actors who are quite hammy. Uh, so this movie is about... Uh, Jamie Bell plays a struggling actor in the early 1980s who has a love affair with this much older actress who's a former Hollywood starlet from kind of the classic black and white Marilyn Monroe days um, based on a true story and it's kind of, it switches back and forth from the present day and a few years ago when they were kind of at the height of their romance. She is very ill. She takes ill while she's performing in a small stage play in Britain and ends up having to stay at his family home in Liverpool, hence the title. Um, and then it kind of flashes back to the point where, you know, she was seducing him and they were falling in love and they had this quite unusual romance because obviously there's, you know, the age difference is very unusual gender wise and like they come from very different backgrounds. Um, so she's she's Gloria Graham, who, you know, you can look up. She was, you know, now relatively obscure, but in the kind of 40s or so, very well known and she's played by Annette Bening, who's obviously wonderful. I've actually not seen very many Annette Bening movies, but I know she's very highly thought of, and she was great in this movie. Um, Very funny, kind of self-aware performance as this quite neurotic, aging movie star, without it being like a sexist portrayal of a woman who's like, oh, I'm so obsessed with my looks, you know. You can really see the psychology behind the character, Um, and it's also quite a light-hearted film, even though it is obviously about kind of her being really ill and tragic romance and what have you, it does have like quite a lot of humour and charm. And um, like in Good Manners, I really enjoyed that they used painted backdrops in this film. That's something I always love to see because now it basically never gets used and in this film they were kind of using it to recreate that classic Hollywood kind of nostalgia. Um, and Jamie Bell... Is good in absolutely everything. Like, Jamie Bell almost always does bad movies. Morgan's rolling her eyes at me because she knows no! so I love Jamie Bell. <laughs> I I am
0: making a swooning face because okay, I that's too right. love Jamie <laughs> <Yes>. Bell.
1: <laughs> Jamie Bell, Jamie Bell was in. The Hayden Christensen sci-fi movie Jumper, which is a film that I seriously think they took every scene, dropped them on the cutting room floor, jumbled them up, and then released the movie. And he was still good in that film. It's appalling, but he is good in everything, and he almost always just does not very good films. And I feel like if only someone, perhaps an agent, for example, (laughs) gave him better roles, we would just be in such a beautiful place. But anyway, his performance in this movie is wonderful, so is Annette Bening, but overall, it's just not particularly great and it feels like they're very much going into that kind of british like kind of sunday afternoon kind of nostalgia viewing tea and cakes movie yes. um, which is just not for me and yeah. i feel like they are there's a very kind of cookie cutter formula they use for the supporting characters you know all these like salt of the earth working class parents and it's like i just not just not super into it um, but if you like Jamie Bell, he dances in this film, <laughs> and the director absolutely knows how attractive Jamie Bell is as well. So there's lots of kind of, uh, yeah, it's just like when they kind of understand that the romantic lead is the guy rather than like being just like, oh, here's two people who are attracted to each yeah. other. You know, it's got you know the female gaze, except it's a, a man director. I don't know much about Paul McGregor, but good movie, but not great. So all right, take your mums to see it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so. My next one is Wonderstruck, which is the new Todd Haynes film. Todd Haynes, of course, being the visionary director of films such as Velvet Goldmine, I'm Not There Safe, and most recently, Carol, which I actually don't love.
1: You do. I loved Carol so much that I made all of my friends go see it with me for my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Including the ones who don't watch films. (laughs)
0: Amazingly, until Wonderstruck, which I am sorry to report, I do not think is very good. Carol was probably my least favorite of his films, which is a testament to the outrageously high quality of his filmography, because Carol is an excellent movie. I just didn't particularly fall in love with it. Um, He's a genius. His movies are amazing. Wonderstruck is not that great, which I was really disappointed by. The reviews had been mixed, so I wasn't expecting a masterpiece, but I really don't think it works kind of tells two stories simultaneously and then of course at the end they come together one of which uh is about a young deaf girl in the 1920s who is really obsessed with a silent film star she lives in new jersey and runs away to new york because her father is quite domineering um it is shot in black and white the young actress is actually deaf i'm gonna find her name too i should have looked all of this up beforehand um she is lovely i think Thought it was really fantastic that they actually cast a deaf actress in this role. Um, her name is Millicent Simmons. And then the other half takes place in the seventies and is about a young boy of around the same age, they're around twelve, from the Midwest somewhere, whose mother has died, and he wants to try to find his father, whom he's never met. He winds up going to New York because he thinks that's where he is and also loses his hearing due to an accident. And it's based on a, a graphic novel by Brian Selznick and it was obviously incredibly well-intentioned. And there was a press conference afterward and listening to Todd Haynes talk about it, you could, he's of course a genius, very eloquent. I could see the ideas, but it just didn't come off for me at all. The two sections didn't feel like they went together. And just stylistically, it was very odd. So the 1920s section kind of mimics silent films. Like, the score isn't exactly pastiche, but is a little bit pastiche And then when certain big things happen, like when something someone throws something, it will have, like, a a big noise to show that something has been thrown. But it's not quite there. And then the adult actors will act big, like silent film actors do, but the kid doesn't. And it's shot uh, in widescreen aspect ratio as opposed to like a square which is how silent movies were shot and like the whole thing like it just looked like a normal movie except in black and white and so i didn't really know what he was trying to do and there's also not enough of that part for the story to really work meanwhile in the 70s the kid loses his hearing but the sound stays and so i, I it was just so discombobulating because i was like well you've got no sound in that half of the movie and probably this was just a financing thing, right? Because getting someone to finance an entirely silent film that takes place in, like, two time periods, and, like, <laughs> I understand the issue. But, Even for Todd Haynes. <laughs> right. But then it just felt like, what? what is the point of any of the artistic choices that you're making? I like, guess it didn't really make sense to me. And the story's a bit hokey, but honestly, the biggest problem is that the young actor um, who plays the the kid in the 70s stuff who definitely has the most screen time, um, whose name I actually can't find on IMDB. He must not be at the top. But that's fine, because what I'm about to say is not very nice. Uh he's not a very good actor. Which feels mean to say about a 12-year-old and he also was at the press conference and was totally adorable and was talking about like creating a character with Todd and like all the movies Todd had him watch and like such a sweet kid he's 12, it makes sense that he's not a great actor, because most 12-year-olds aren't, but so much of the movie rests on his face being really, like, uh, um, being able to translate a lot of emotion, and I just was like, I don't care (laughs) about this kid, which feels so awful to say, but I was kind of like, all right, like, it was the opposite of the Florida Project, right, where you're just completely, immediately drawn into those children, especially the girl, this kid felt like he was acting and it just it just didn't click like the whole thing was not magnetic to me um, I've seen other people who really liked it I like I hope other people do it's a movie for children um, and if kids really like this and get hooked on cinema that's obviously a fantastic outcome but I didn't find it that engaging I was a little bored which was too bad because Todd Haynes is one of my very favorite directors um, yeah it was not it was not great not the best kids not not great actors i felt it was just i felt so bad i was sitting there watching it and i was like oh no i'm a terrible person but sometimes it's true so yeah that's my thought
1: i guess at some point tautines had to make a bad film yeah or a less than good film
0: well, it's such a nice movie, too, and I almost wonder if that's part of the problem, also, is that it's, like, it's so nice. I was like... yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, Get get Todd Haynes to do, like, the Todd Haynes remake of Bridge to Terabithia or something. <laughs>
0: right, yeah. Like, the need more pathos. <laughs>
1: Um, I think you
0: have one more.
1: Yeah, which is a complete 180 from the movie that Morgan just covered. Yes. The Killing
0: of a Sacred Deer. I'm going to interrupt you first because I have managed to read literally zero things about this film. I know nothing about it. So my challenge to you is to talk about this with minimal
1: spoilers. Because okay. I obviously you have to say something. But I want to How much of the premise am I permitted to reveal? I mean, it, it's up to your discretion. Like, okay. I, we we're going to talk about the film; like, it's fine. But I, I don't want much detail, please. I will, Okay, I will. I will restrain myself from going too deep into what I think is the actual premise of the film, which I think is perfectly fine to not go into um, much. Like good manners, where I did not tell you what most of the film is actually about. So, the director Yorgos Lanthimos is best known for doing The Lobster uh, last year or two years ago, also starring Colin Farrell, which is a very twisted, unusual film about a world where if you're single for too long, you basically turn into an animal. You get to select which animal it is. And if you want to find someone to hook up with to prevent this process from happening, you go to this kind of horrible cold hotel in the middle of nowhere where you're forcibly paired up with other random people until you find someone that you can marry. It's not like a whimsical fantasy movie, which I discovered one of my friends thought it was quite recently. Because she was oh. like, I thought I'd like The Lobster. No. And I was like, this is a movie where people and animals are brutalized. So <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> but um, it's it's kind of, it's got kind of a morbid sense of humor. He's got this very distinctive way of directing the actors, which is they deliver a lot of dialogue in a monotone A lot of people really loved The Lobster. I kind of thought it went on for too long and I just wasn't super into it. Like, I recognised that it was a good film, but it just wasn't for me. This film, I actually liked a lot more and it is in a very similar style. So I think maybe either it's a better film or it's just like the scenario was more appealing to me. But this one has Colin Farrell playing a surgeon and he's married to Nicole Kidman, who's also a doctor and they have two kids. They've got like a really kind of like you know, kind of happy, successful life as rich doctors. The other main character is this teenage boy who is played by um I may mispronounce his name, his name is Barry Keown and he was in Dunkirk. Um he's a young actor, he plays the fisherman's son in that film. Um, He's got quite a distinctive face, so you will probably recognize him if you've seen Dunkirk. And he has this enigmatic relationship with Colin Farrell's surgeon character, where it's really unclear how they met and why they know each other. Like at first you kind of assume that maybe he's his son or a relative or something, and then it becomes clear that they actually have no connection. And this boy is really kind of strange and manipulative, he has this goal that I'm not going to go into. Um, I can't really go any further than that without breaking Morgan's spoiler rule <laughs> uh, which makes it quite difficult to discuss this film and I was actually quite glad I wasn't writing a full length review for it because it would be very tricky for that reason. What I would say is that it's very funny but I imagine it's not funny at all if you're watching it at home on a laptop. I would recommend if possible seeing this in theatres In the unlikely event that you have an accessible uh, indie theatre near you that is full of people who are hyped to see a Yorgos Lanthimos movie, (laughs) um, which I realise is a pretty niche market, it's probably like 10 cities in the world, but that's where to go. He does have this really uh, recognisable way of directing the actors. You can basically tell from the trailer what I'm talking about, which I feel like some people might find off-putting. And... I found it maybe slightly too stylized in The Lobster, but somehow it worked a lot better for me here, especially the kids, uh, because they have these two child actors, like a young boy and a teenage girl, who are simultaneously really well-observed and funny child characters. Like They're quite obnoxious and they have these like really silly and embarrassing interests and that sort of thing but they're also delivering most of their dialogue in this monotone. (laughs) And they're kind of having these conversations that you just never would have. So, you know, there's a scene where the teenage boy and the teenage girl are having a conversation about like, should they go for a walk? And she's like, well, I'll have to bring the dog with me. And he's like, no, I'm nervous around dogs because what if it meets another dog and the two dogs start fighting. I just had this terrible fear of when two dogs fight and you have to separate them. And it's like, no one talks like that! But it just, it works really well instead of feeling pretentious, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's also really menacing. It has basically a straightforward horror movie score. Mm-hmm. Um, the score that was missing from Mother, basically, because Mother didn't have any music. But like incredibly tense, very loud, extremely overblown and melodramatic horror movie score, um, which works perfectly with... Uh, Nicole Kidman, because while she's also doing the whole kind of Lanthimos dialogue thing, um, she's also Nicole Kidman, so she's kind of doing a lot more of this morbid humor, kind of horror movie reactive stuff, which she does in a lot of films, and she's absolutely fantastic in this movie as she is in everything, because it's Nicole Kidman. Yes. Um, while Colin Farrell is more of a sort of doofus, <laughs> which is also what you'd expect if you've seen The Lobster. Yes. So yeah, I'm really interested to see what Morgan thinks of this film. I feel like she'll probably enjoy it, but you know, she will report back on Twitter to listeners once she's seen the film. Yeah, um, but I would, I would really re- recommend this with the caveat that it's quite twisted, as was the Lobster. There's probably less violence, but because it's kind of about doctors, there's like medical stuff. So you know, if you're not into medical stuff, don't watch it.
0: I knew it was about a surgeon, and so I was anticipating that that was a There's not, like,
1: a bunch of surgery or anything, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I liked The Lobster more than you, although I definitely thought it had serious flaws. The second half is not nearly as good as the first half. It's Um, too long. It's way too long. It goes on forever. But I definitely, like, I I think back on it fondly. I enjoyed watching it, and I think it's just such a bizarre and, like, unique movie that you kind of... I just appreciate
1: that it existed. It's also technically astounding. It was actually torture to watch The Killing of the Sacred Deer. (laughs) If I, I was like, for basically the whole film, I was just like wishing it was over. And I was also, I was watching it at like a a. 9am press screening which was packed and everyone was into it. Everyone was having like the time of their lives during this movie. Like people were so kind of enthusiastic, including myself. But I was, I just kept thinking periodically, if I was watching this, Maybe even if I was just watching this in a half-full theatre, I might have walked out. And yeah. if I'd been watching this in a screener, there's no chance I would have made it through. Because if I'd had control over the pause button, I would not have made it past like the first 15 minutes. It's so tense. But like afterwards, I was just like, that was so worth it. It was so worth it. I
0: watched both of his other movies on DVD. I rented them from the Oxford uh, library in the spring. Because <laughs> his other two are uh, Dogtooth, which is a huge deal when it came out uh, years ago. And then this movie, Alps. Alps, I think, is really, like, actually boring. Like, I finished it, but oh man. I've never even heard of that movie. Not an interesting film. Do not recommend it. Dogtooth is one of the most fucked up things I have ever seen. I'm not
1: watching Dogtooth. In my
0: entire life. I
1: read a little bit about what Dogtooth is about, and there's no fucking way I'm watching Dogtooth. I was like,
0: wow, this is the craziest thing I've ever, like, just genuinely really disturbing. And I, but I bet that that is also one that it's definitely not as straight up funny as The Lobster, although it's also in Greek. So I think there might be a little bit of a, not like cultural gap, but just like it's, it's easier to when it's in your language, like the jokes pop a little bit more. But I wonder if that also is one where if you're seeing it in a packed theater, the sort of absurdist yeah. stuff, you do laugh more. Because I remember seeing The Lobster at the New York Film Festival in the the packed, massive auditorium where they show competition films. This was supposed to be through two or three years ago, because it came out before it was actually released. And, like, we were all laughing hysterically for, for, like, a lot of the movie. And then I talked to someone within the past few months, I think, who'd watched it at home and been like, what the fuck is this film? Like, this is yeah. so grim. And I was like, no, it's hilarious. I mean, it's also
1: fucked up, but it's but really But it's also funny. like the, the way, like I guess the, the construction of the humor is so unique and odd. Yeah. Because it's not like, oh, this is morbid humor. It's not like when you're right. watching a horror movie and there's tension lasts, although they do have a lot of those as well. It's more just like the kind of joke setup is so atypical to what you would see in a comedy movie or even a funny horror movie, I don't know, like Get Out or something, which yes. has like some morbid humor. No wonder he works with the same actors again, right? Because it must yeah. be so hard to cast and then direct a scene that you know in your head is somehow funny. And then have it like edited in a way that conveys that humor consistently throughout the entire film. I don't even—it's like some kind of insane alchemy. I cannot even yeah. imagine how you make that film, right? Because it just doesn't—it doesn't come organically as a joke. Like you can see how joke construction works in a comedy, and in this, it's just like I don't even know. You have two children discussing dog walking. Like, why <laughs> is this funny? I don't even know why this is funny.
0: Oh yeah, he's a—he's a distinct one
1: there's like humorous scenes about people with like horrible ailments <laughs> right. and like kind of twisted sex stuff. I don't even know how they're doing it, but he has a unique skill that I did not really engage with in the lobster, but this, yeah. Yeah. Recommended if you can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to do my last two and
0: then we have one more to discuss after that. Briefly, I'll just say um, I saw one, Korean film by Hong Sang-soo called On the Beach Alone at Night. This is a tiny, tiny little movie. If you don't live in New York or Los Angeles in the U.S., this probably is not going to come out near you, maybe Chicago and San Francisco. But if this is your kind of thing, I totally loved it. It's about an actress who has had an affair with her director and then kind of... Left South Korea, although you do not find out that, that is what the movie is about until like three quarters of the way through. Part of it takes place in Germany and then she goes back to South Korea, but basically the structure is just these very long conversations that she has with other people, mostly other women, though not exclusively. I would never have expected that this movie was directed by a man, but it is, and in fact, it is inspired by his personal life because he had an affair with the lead actress of this movie. And then this movie is kind of like about that, but he, it's really critical of like the director figure. So himself and also just men in general. And the women are really sensitively depicted. Like I just, I was fascinated to find this out after the fact I was like, Oh wow. Okay. (laughs) Um, so that was, really interesting and a sort of nice different sort of look at men who can actually make films about women without them being sexist and depressing but the other thing I saw that probably was my favorite at the festival except Call Me By Your Name and maybe the last one we're going to discuss uh, is a film called Lady Bird directed and written by Greta Gerwig stars Saoirse Ronan as well as Laurie Metcalf as her mother. It's kind of a coming of age story about this teenage girl who's in her last. Sarah Ronan is playing a
1: teenager? Yes. As, okay.
0: All right uh, then. I mean, let's look up how old Sarah Ronan is.
1: I mean, she's 23. Okay. Yeah. It's just that because we've been seeing her playing a, te- a teenager for like a decade, but sure, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, when she was. In Atonement, she was playing like a 13 year old. So, you know,
0: she's very, very convincingly like, <laughs> an 18 year old girl in this. Uh, and it's basically about her relationship with her mother and the struggles that they have, but also about her romantic relationships, her relationship with her best friend. It is absolutely hilarious and also really moving. Lucas Hedges, who was in Manchester by the Sea last year, plays her first oh boyfriend. Oh my god, he's so and is, good. He is hilarious. He is so funny. Timothy Chalamet, who is the star of Call Me By Your Name, plays another boy who she kind of gets entangled with who is introduced in his band and also reads a lot of Howard Zinn. So that gives you a real picture of what that young man is like. Dresses all in black. I was like, I love you. <laughs> An obnoxious child. <laughs> um, he is fucking hilarious in this movie. Like, just, oh my god, that kid's gonna be so famous. Subject for another day. But Searsha is just so good. And then Laurie Metcalf as her mother is, uh, oh my god, it was just fantastic. It made me think about, you know, my friends and growing up and like, I. Never fought with my parents as a teenager because I was too well behaved, but it just so it wasn't like the experiences that she is having specifically bore any direct resemblance to my life at that age, but it was so insightful about just being a kid and so well observed that it felt very universal in the way that films that are incredibly specific can have that feeling. And yeah, just very funny, really beautiful. Very good on class also. She's from a sort of very middle class family and wishes that she were rich. And there are other sort of very rich families in the town. And there's all this kind of stuff going on on that level that was really sharply observed. Um, I loved it. I think it's going to be one of my favorite films of the year. That should be coming out within the month, I think, in the U.S. And probably relatively soon in the U.K. also. So keep an eye out for that. I'll definitely be tweeting about it when it comes out yeah it was just great i immediately got out of it and like told every woman i know that was like this this movie's great including like my 93 year old grandmother who loved Sir Sharon and brooklyn (laughs) like ooh, she was great in that i was like i know i know you liked it (laughs) so uh yeah good film women are directors are good and should do more things my conclusion from this week basically (laughs) and we have one more for this very long podcast Yes. Or conclusion. Uh, Why don't you describe it a little bit?
1: This is the other film that we both saw. And actually kind of the deal breaker for this for me was uh, Morgan basically just told me to see it because it was quite hard for me to arrange my schedule. And she was just like, you have to see it. So I did. Um, And it turned out to be a good recommendation. It's called 120 beats per minute or just BPM. And it's a French drama about ACT UP AIDS activists in The nineteen nineties, they set up a French Parisian wing of ACT UP and kind of did similar sort of actions to try and get more political and public attention towards people who had AIDS. So you know they're doing things like they're going to public places and demonstrating, obviously, but they're also raiding laboratories and like throwing red paint around and trying to lobby with politicians and putting up posters. Trying to get attention from, especially like gay men, but also you know people who are in prison, sex workers, uh, basically all the kind of vulnerable communities that are getting shafted by the government having no interest in helping people with AIDS, and it's it's just really good. It's so good. <laughs> it's a really realistic depiction of activism. Just the kind of the the arguments and the infighting in a group of people who are all trying to work towards the same goal, but you don't have any resources, and obviously, because everyone is so politically clued in and it's such a you know incredibly urgent issue that they're all fighting for, everyone has slightly different ways of going about it. Some people are more extreme than others. So there's all this infighting, but they are all united. In this plan, and it's a kind of it combines this really great depiction of activism with kind of interpersonal stories. Like each person, you kind of gradually find out, you know, about their lives and like whether or not they actually have AIDS themselves. There's also like a central love story between two of the male leads. It's really great.
0: Well, what I found so brilliant about this, I the stuff you're saying about um, the way activism is depicted is totally true, and I admired it so much because. There are characters who want to be more militant and then characters who want to try to just persuade more the like drug companies to give them more information. And uh, in certain individual moments in the film, you can kind of tell that a, a certain character is maybe not right about something. But I didn't feel that the movie ever came down hard on one side or other of the basic argument. Its point more was like, activism is important, but this whole situation is complicated. Like It's not like one of these things is right. It's more like you just have to do it and then figure it out, which I thought was more honest and also interesting and productive than being like, you have also, to do it this way.
1: It's also very much like activism as survival, like a necessity, yeah. because it's not like a more... I guess, dramatized film. It's not like Pride, which I also absolutely adore, but Pride is very much like a conventional drama where yep. they're working towards a specific goal that is or is not achieved, and then there's a conclusion. Whereas in this, like, you're going into it aware that the AIDS crisis is in full swing, and there's no way they're actually going to be able to achieve anything really concrete by the end of the film, and they're not what working towards a specific goal. They're all just like, we are dying, we need attention, we need people to like pay attention to this issue. We know now there is still no like completely concrete solution, even though you know it's a very different situation now, but it's more like the only thing you can do is fight. Um, and I think this, this isn't really a spoiler, but I really liked there's a moment kind of that comes maybe two thirds into the film where a couple of the characters are kind of discussing what their jobs are and what jobs are from the other people in their little activism community. And it's kind of when you and they realize that they basically just don't know anything about any of these people, even though they spend every waking moment together, because they're all just have this single-minded obsession um, towards the same goal, and they just have no time to think about what else they're doing. And obviously, many of them, that is the only thing they're doing, because it's the only thing they can do, is just fight.
0: Yeah. Obviously, it, you know people are interested in this. Um, How to survive a plague? The documentary has become a pretty canonical text, and I would recommend that to anyone. I think it's on Netflix everywhere. It's an, that's an incredible film. But what I found really incredible about this, it's shot very effectively in a kind of docu-drama-ish style. Yeah, and then there will be occasional moments where it gets a little bit surreal, but that almost masks that. The structure of it is really kind of genius. It starts out being almost all about the activism because it's just sort of bringing you into it and showing you how all this is working. And the scenes in the at the sort of meetings can go on for a pretty long time. They're really engaging, but they're really showing you. Yeah, the, it is
1: like a documentary of seeing the process of when you're sitting in like a fucking shitty, airless meeting room having an argument right? about ephemera. <laughs> and it's also really urgent.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was listening to some podcast and someone pointed out like one of the great things about the the scenes is that sometimes they'll have a close up on someone's face who looks really fucking bored and like that's not a normal thing to be like you're supposed to be interested in the scene, right? And you totally are. I was gripped the whole time. But you don't usually show a character who's bored about what's happening when you're supposed to be interested in what's happening. <laughs> like, but you get this whole sense of like everybody in the room having a sort of different feeling about what's going on but as the movie continues it the activism doesn't vanish by any stretch of the
1: imagination
0: but the screen time shifts to be more and more about this central romance between these two characters
1: and you really and, cannot tell who the leads are or who the romantic couple are in the introductory scenes no not it's at all. completely an ensemble cast and then by the end it's really clear that there is a protagonist and he has a love interest right And there are
0: also, when they do these actions, they will often cut after, and the filmmaking is very smart about this, to a club scene. And they'll be dancing after, and then often there will be sex after that. And so the activism is, like, intimately linked in the film, like, on a filmic level and also a thematic level, to sex and then romance, and then this all gets linked together, and in the, the way that's, that's executed at the very end of the movie, I can't really explain, both because of spoilers, and also because, like, it just wouldn't make sense if you haven't seen it, but is so brilliant, both on, like, just a cinematic level, but also because obviously what they're fighting for is their sexual identity, and literally, like, this is a sexually transmitted disease, but also on a sort and, of more... you know, more it represents
1: of... life and love. Right, like, on a
0: more know? basic level, like, they want to Live and this is life, and your you know politics isn't just about protest. And so there's a lot of subtle stuff going on under the surface that's not just this kind of documentary showing how or documentary style showing how it was. The the director Robin Camp Campillo Campillo was in ACT UP in the in the nineties.
1: Oh my god, I did not know that.
0: Yeah, that he basically okay, like, this is, Wow. Yeah. Um, in France, and so it's I think. It's not that it doesn't seem complex, like it's obviously really sophisticated, but I think there's a lot more going on than even immediately meets the eye. I just thought it was brilliant. I thought it was so good. And the actors were all amazing too.
1: Um, I think this is maybe, it's definitely one of the most actually explicit films I've ever seen, if not the most. And I think it's more noticeable because it's not always like, like, I mean, a lot of films, especially horror films, make this really obvious thematic link between sex and death. But it's also there's a lot of movies that just have like eroticized violence and eroticized death. Whereas in this, like, it's loving but also very realistic sex. Mm-hmm. So you see like there's characters who have they're kind of in later stages of having AIDS, so you know, they have Kaposi's sarcoma already. Um, you can see people like having discussions about whether or not to use a condom, that kind of thing but it's also very much like we're alive and it's showing how alive they are and like how kind of visceral these connections are rather than it being like, we're going to do like a really sexy sex scene now.
0: Yeah. I feel like there are three sex scenes in it. I think. Yeah, maybe three, but, but they're all done really differently and they sort of signify different things in the story in a really intelligent way. Yeah, and and they're very explicit in a in a way that works. Yeah, I thought it was just so well done. The Lee guy also looks a ton like John Bernthal, which really amused me. <laughs> from like the minute he showed up on the screen, I was like, they found the French version. Yeah, it it's good. Go see it. I think it's coming out here soon. Although you can never sort of trust foreign film release dates, and it's the French submiss- submission for the Oscars. So it'll probably get nominated for an Oscar, in which case it will be more accessible to a wider variety of yeah. of people. Because when foreign movies come out in the US, obviously that basically means New York and LA, and like, good luck to you elsewhere. But I think this is definitely one of the best of the year so far. And I don't have that many left to see, really.
1: And I realize we have said that about like half the films we've said in this podcast, but they're really freaking good. And this one's really freaking good. And all of these films we've discussed... Are very different from each other. So basically, you should just listen to your mums here, do what we say, follow our <laughs> advice, and watch yes. all of the films in our list, unless you're really disturbed and alarmed by some of the topics we've discussed.
0: Yeah, well, don't listen. Don't watch all the ones on my list. <laughs>
1: all the, watch all the ones on your list. Select from mine.
0: Yeah, this has been a very long episode. Thank you for listening to all of this. But we had a lot of movies to discuss. I love festival season, it's exciting to get to see a lot of things. Next week, we will be back with American Vandal. We're going to do American Vandal next week.
1: We are almost certainly going to do American Vandal. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet. And in the unlikely event that I hate it, we will think of a different topic. But I'm reasonably sure I am going to enjoy American Vandal. It's a Netflix series. Apparently, it's quite short. You can watch it in like a week.
0: It's four hours long. So, dear listeners, if you have not yet seen American Vandal, I cannot recommend it more highly. I watched it in around 18 hours Um, the impression I
1: get is that it's a teen dirtbag parody of serial and other true crime things I've seen, people seem very enthusiastic.
0: Absolutely (laughs) sublime it is so unbelievably good so check that out in time for the podcast next week and if we change our topic we will
1: let you know on Twitter and in the future we will be having dedicated episodes to Call Me By Your Name and The Shape of Water. Yes
0: So be on the lookout for those coming out. Thank you, as ever, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes. That is how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.